0: Hello there and welcome. It's episode 121. That is wild. I can't believe we made it to 121 and we keep going. I got a couple more in the bank for you. Lots more coming up. Uh, you can find us lifeinredpodcast.com, at lifeinredpodcast on Instagram and Facebook and lifeinredpod on Twitter. My guest today, uh, as a lot of other past guests, shout out to uh fan and fellow alumni of the, the podcast on one of the earliest episodes, uh, my friend Casey, for um, hooking me up with this guest because it was an absolutely fascinating conversation about a subject that's kind of in the general media, I guess you could say, that you see in movies and on the news. Uh, but I think this conversation is going to really open your eyes to how sensationalized Hollywood and the media make this out to be when the actual science behind it is is really telling a different story and and what we're talking about here is forensic psychology and the idea of being uh, designated as not criminally responsible. So my guest is a PhD student uh, who's been studying forensic psychology for a while now. And we talk about what that means, what it means to be not criminally responsible, some of the myths around being uh, found not criminally responsible um, and about mental illness that we're so often told. And I think as I release this episode, which is uh, really close to Halloween, and we think of, you know, the movies of the the slasher, the evil villain, or or the killer who's locked away in an asylum and then escapes. And we, we really get this idea that being mentally ill is associated with being dangerous. And I really appreciated this conversation because one, I, I learned a ton of a subject I, I didn't really know before, but really putting this into perspective in a context of which, how it really applies to society, I think is really important. I think you're really going to learn a lot. I really enjoyed this conversation. She's brilliant. She's a genius. Please give it up for my guest, Lindsay Healy.
1: You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.
0: This one is really cool and I think prudent because I know we're talking a little bit early, but when this comes out, we're just about to hit Halloween and I think it's prudent to this conversation. So I'd like to welcome Lindsay Healy. Thank you so much for joining me.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: You are... Uh, You're studying, you're in your last doctoral year. So you're going to be Dr. Healy soon. Um, But forensic psychology, I think to a lot of people, uh, you see forensics. So I'm thinking CSI immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you think psychology. So you think therapists or psychologists, all that type of stuff. What is forensic psychology?
2: Uh, So it's funny you mentioned the CSI thing, because that's a very common question I get. (laughs) Um, everyone thinks that I'm out there with like collecting DNA and whatnot. So that's more um, forensic science. Um, so forensic psychology would be the intersection of uh, essentially mental health and psychology and the law. And that can, can, mm. that can take many different forms. Um, I do go to Carleton. Uh, I, uh, that's where I'm studying forensic psychology there. And uh, the wealth of different research topics that my colleagues and my fellow students study are really uh, wide. So um, I have colleagues that study like jury decision-making and um, police psychology, um, correctional psychology and how mental illness plays into to corrections, um, psychopathy, I'm in the, I have colleagues that study psychopathy, I'm in that lab actually. And then um, my area of research is more focused on the forensic mental health system. So that is essentially like a wide umbrella term for um, the intersection between law and mental illness, typically uh, serious mental illness. And it's a huge system that incorporates uh, legal partners, such as you know crown, uh, crown attorneys and, and courts and decision-making there, um, all the way to the healthcare system um, where there's individuals get treated and whatnot. So the whole point of the forensic mental health system is not to be punitive and not punish individuals who've come into contact with the law and who have a mental illness, but to help rehabilitate them and reintegrate them into society. Um, So uh, different concepts I study are like the mental health court. So Ottawa has a mental health court um, Mm -hmm. where individuals are diverted from the traditional criminal justice system and sort of given treatment options instead of charges and sent to prison, because we know prison population is already dealing with an overrepresentation of individuals with mental illness. Um, and, and typically, uh, that kind of um, consequence does not help solve the underlying problems, right? And there's a lot of reoffending and whatnot. So we treat the mental illness. Um, so I study um, mental health core and forensic assessment. And the big uh, group of individuals I study are forensic patients. So that's sort of an umbrella term. Um, of anyone who has a mental illness and who has come into contact with the law, uh, so some of those individuals are uh, actually individuals who are found not criminally responsible on account of mental disorder. So, moving forward, because I'm probably going to talk about that term a lot, I'm just going to mm-hmm. say, say NCR because that's not criminally responsible because it's a mouthful. <laughs> right.
1: right. Um,
2: so, individuals who are NCR are basically. Um, the big crux of the population who uh, remain in the forensic mental health system. So they have um, been involved with a a crime. So they committed a crime. But because of a serious mental illness, they were unable to appreciate the nature or quality of the act, or that they uh, didn't know that it was wrong. So that's like the legal definition. Mm -hmm. So as soon as someone has been found not criminally responsible after different um, forensic assessments, which are completed by psychologists and psychiatrists. Then they enter the um, forensic mental health system rather than the criminal justice system where they are treated and um, where they're overseen by a different body. Um, They're called review boards instead of the criminal justice system. And sort of they remain in the system there until they um are are rehabilitated and treated for their crime. So that's that's the big sample that I study. Um uh so the NCR population would be the the main sample that I study.
0: Wow. Lots lots to unpack there. Yes, right.
2: You at you there.
0: <laughs> see, they're, they're, don't say sorry. It's perfect. Um and there's lots of like I said lots of stuff to get there. And the reason I bring up Halloween um and this was kind of interesting time because there's so many movies, like right, like Hollywood loves to associate spree killers, mass murderers. Uh, you know the slasher flicks, like they all associate, like they escape from the like the you know the the institution where they're locked up for a men- like mental illness or disorder. Yep. And so, as a general population, and even me who knows a lot about mental health and illness our first association really with this, this subject matter is, you know, Michael Myers, like of the Halloween franchise, right? Like being locked up and then escaping and then going on a murder spree. Like everyone's like, Oh my God. So yeah. I imagine, and I will ask that question in a bit, the, the stigma that just surrounds and the, the danger and the perception of danger when it comes to, you know, NCR and, and all that. But before we get there, I'm super interested to know how you got into this because you know, you don't see a lot of children being like, I want to go up, like, grow up and study people who weren't deemed criminally responsible for a crime, right? Like, that's just yeah, exactly. (laughs) Sounds like something you more fall into rather than like grow up like dreaming of being. So, like, what was the path here? Uh, that, yeah, I
2: sort of had a Um, an untraditional path. I guess I speak to a lot of undergrads at Carleton. Carleton has actually has a fantastic forensic psychology program. Mm. It's one of the leading ones, one of the few leading programs or only programs in in Canada. So um, a lot of there's actually, it's one of the only undergrad programs, there's a few that you can actually take four years and and focus on forensic psychology. Mm. So I think a lot of students assumed I went to Carleton and and did my undergrad there and then sort of ended up into the the graduate program, which a lot of people do. Um, I didn't. I went to Queens. I took a health studies and biology degree, uh, which had some psychology classes and it had some uh, a lot of research classes that helped me. But I would start earlier than that because I've yeah, like I've always been, I was never like really big into, um, like I loved CSI. Like a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. I wasn't big into like the, the, the slasher films, like you're discussing. So it wasn't really that, I think my, 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 uh, I wouldn't call them career, my job opportunities that I had in high school really drew my interest to, uh, the, um, the population of people who do have mental illness. So My very first job when I was fourteen, I worked at uh, Rita Regional Center. I'm not Wrong. sure if you heard of it yeah, In Smith yeah. yeah. And I was like a little petite fourteen year old, and I was working with um, the individuals there had a, like severe, usually severe cognitive, developmental, and uh, physical disabilities. And so for two summers, I worked with these individuals, and I, I really enjoyed working with them. And that sort of led into my next job where I worked, uh, I worked at the ODSP office for a couple summers, that's the Ontario Disability Support Program. A lot of individuals on ODSP, which uh, maybe a lot of people don't know, are suffering from um, um, mental illness issues that do interfere with their ability to, to work and whatnot. So that's why they're on this program. So I was exposed to um, individuals uh, with mental illness through that job too. And then I would say like the, that interest was always there. And I loved watching documentaries on um, uh, people who were in prison and whatnot. And then when I first started at Queens, I wanted to go, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I got older. I knew I I did love psychology. I liked health and whatnot. So I was like, you know what? Queens is a great school. It's close to home. I grew up um, uh, near Brockville. So it's close to home. I'm going to go to Queens and uh, they have an awesome health program. So I did that. And in my first year at Queens, I actually, uh, you know, I don't know, even know what drew me to do this, but I, I ended up tutoring a um, an incarcerated individual who was at one of the federal penitentiaries there uh, in Kingston. And that was like, I was 19 and I still didn't know enough about, you um, You know, rehabilitation and whatnot. And I was quite naive. And this individual, he was there on drug drug charges. He was like 24, I think. And he really opened my eyes because I, I, I I tutored him. I guess he didn't really need tutoring. He was very intelligent. Over the course of a year, and part of that um, process, he asked me to help him apply to university. And my first thought was um, you know, not proud to, to admit this, but, I, but I have, because this is, um, how we learn. My first thought was, well, you're in prison. Like, what do you mean you want to go to university? That's not how it works. Right. Mm-hmm. And I had this naive view on like, oh, I don't know if you're going to be accepted. Like you have, you, you go to prison, you have a criminal record. Why? that I don't know if they're going to accept you. I'm thinking this, right. I'm not saying this out loud. And, you know, there was no reason for me to think that like, that's, um, that's sort of like a societal stigma around individuals who are in prisons. And um, he ended up getting into to university and ended up getting out on early parole. And I don't know where he is now, but I hope that he did get to university and I hope that he's doing well now, but he really opened my eyes, you know, when he got accepted and stuff, I was just like, wow, I need to like change my, my way of thinking. Cause this is like, um, you know, just because someone offense doesn't mean they don't deserve another chance they don't deserve to be rehabilitated and and it was like he I don't think he knows how much he changed my Mm. outlook on things so that was really amazing so I was in my first year at Queen so on I go I'm doing my health degree and I had um I took an abnormal psychology class in my third year and I don't call that anymore. Cause that's a stigmatizing term. Mm. Um, but essentially it was about mental illness, serious mental illness. And we had a guest lecture and this gentleman came in, he talked about forensic mental health, sort of like what we're talking about now. He talked about sexual offending and he talked about, um, what it means to be NCR and the forensic mental health system. And I remember I turned to my friend, I remember where I was sitting in that, um, in that get uh, in that hall and I turned to her and I said oh I want to be that guy someday that's so cool mm. and then I went on with my life and I forgot about it because that he was a psychologist and I was in a health degree and I was happy in my health degree and on I went so I applied to do a, I applied to do a, a master in public health in my fourth year and then coming out of my fourth year there was a job at the Brockville Mental Health Center which um, for those of you who don't know, so the Royal Ottawa Mental Health Center owns, um, owns the Brockville Mental Health Center as well. It's a separate campus and it's a, a, it's a forensic, they have forensic units there. So I coming right out of my undergrad, I thought, you know what, this is good. I'll get some reser- research experience for the summer. Uh, I'll be a researcher at this forensic hospital and then I'll move on and do my master in public health next fall. So I went in, I, I, um, I was doing the interview, um, and the, the person I was doing the interview with, I looked him up and I had found that he had written, um, he had done research with my teacher from that abnormal psychology class. I was like, great, this will be an icebreaker show that I've been looking up his research. So I brought that up. I was like, yeah, like, um, I see you've done research with, uh, with uh, my, my, my prof from Queens. She taught me abnormal psychology and he laughed and he said, I think I gave a guest lecture in that class. Um. And like my <laughs> head just exploded and I'm like, yeah, I remember you. Anyways, long story short, I ended up absolutely loving that job. I, I deferred my master of public health. I was like, I'm, I want to research. Um, I want to be a forensic researcher. I did research. Uh, at the, the Royal, we'll call it the Royal, even though it includes the Brockville site too. Um, so that was in 2014. So I did research under this individual. Um, his name's Dr. Michael Cito and he, uh, is now my PhD supervisor. And I someday I'm going to be that guy, uh, which is him who gave that guest lecture to me back in my undergrad. So it's sort of like, a sort of a cool story I like to tell was definitely like fate I feel like here but essentially I got that job just for a job because I liked research and I thought you know forensic this is cool and within a month I knew that this is what I want to do for a living Mm. and I I had only had my undergrad so that's why I pursued my graduate studies um, at Carleton luckily it's nearby one of the best programs in Canada Mm. was nearby and and my 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 Michael, who was, um, who's the forensic research director at the Royal was a junk with Carlton. So I took that opportunity to, um, work with, work, work, with him in the academic sense and get my, my degree. So, right, yeah, long almost, story, but that's how I got to where I am today. Wow. Yeah.
0: It almost is destiny, isn't it? That, I feel uh, like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love those full circle moments. Like even like listening to you talk, I'm like, is it going to be hit? Like the story. Yeah. Like,
1: oh, whoa. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, super interesting. Now getting back to the subject matter and like, like I mentioned, so when it comes to mental illness and mental health, you know, especially mental illness, people who've been diagnosed, right. We, we have a certain appetite with as a, as a culture, as a society, even as progressive as we we're becoming with it, it's like, we'll, we'll tolerate things like depression, anxiety, maybe, you know, OCD, um, things like that. But then when you get into, you know, more severe illnesses, whether it's, you know, the identity disorder or BPD or even bipolar, right? Like people were still not really ready to talk about that schizophrenia. And there was a ton of stigma that surrounds these illnesses that individuals who suffer from these illnesses are, are dangerous, um, I think a lot of people would think that if you, especially like something like schizophrenia, which is heavily stigmatized in film and media.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So let's try to dispel some myths, especially when it comes to this term of NCR and mental illness. What are some things that maybe is either told in in the general discussion of media and movies that like people seem to believe that you're able to be like not true you know we've studied it we see it and like this isn't the case is is there examples you have of that yeah
2: for sure so um the media and uh whether it's um mainstream media or like uh, movies and whatnot like you're saying is a huge um it progresses though, that stigmatizing um, sort of progression, it creates the stigma and it um, perpetuates it. That's the word I'm looking for. So essentially there has been tons of research on this, but there is after all the research been done, there is no direct causal link between mental illness and violence or mental illness and offending. Mm. There's no scientific link between those two. Um, The rates of violence among people um, uh, with mental illness and a co-occurring substance use disorder, that's um, that's when we see that increased risk of violence come in. That's one thing that has been found in the literature. However, it's important for people to know that violent crimes happen all the time, and most people that that could commit these violent crimes don't have a mental illness Mm. so like people need to remember that like we, we we're scared of these people that have a mental illness what about all the people that commit violent crimes knowingly that don't have a mental illness so that's something people uh you know need to step back and recognize so there is no direct link Essentially, when it comes to violence and offending, there's so many factors at play. There's, um, you know, what's going on in the individual's life. There's socioeconomic, socioeconomic status. Childhood trauma is a huge um, contributing mm-hmm. factor to future offending and violence, witnessing violence as a child. And unfortunately, people who do have um, mental illness as an adult, they're disproportionately more likely to have been um exposed to violence as a child and to have been um have experienced abuse as a child so there's all these co-occurring factors but you cannot have a diagnosis and say that person is more likely to be violent that's not research Mm -hmm. has not backed that up um in terms of people that have been found ncr uh, those people, some of those people have been violent, but we uh, we only hear, really in me- media hear about the ones that have been, like, you hear about the people who attack a random stranger violently. Like, have you heard of Vincent Lee? He's mm-hmm. the he's the individual that beheaded in, uh, in right. the Greyhound breast, right? Like, right. as soon as I say that, you know exactly who I'm talking about. And that didn't even happen in our own province. That happened um, in the prairies. Like, that those sort of sensationalized media cases, those cases are so, so, so rare. Yet those are the ones we hear about. I'm sure there's been Mm a hundred articles or more written about him. And um, there's been research looking at the NCR population across Canada. And there's like a lot of reasons, like um, most offenses are not violent. I think, um, I I had some stats here, but only uh, have my stats here. So only 9% of individuals found NCR had a serious violent crime. Okay, Mm. Most crimes are like property crime. Most crimes are threats like uttering threats. So, um, you know, where I work, um, I study the population very uh, in their crimes and whatnot. And I think people would think that all these, these individuals for NCR who are detained in the hospital, they're all murderers. They're all, no, like very few, like, sure. There are some Um, very, very few, a lot. Like most of the offenses are like property crime threats, like very low level offenses and um, strangers are less than 25% of the victims. And when I say victims, again, it could be a victim of property crime too, or a victim of, um, you know it doesn't mean it was a serious event uh, most victims are family members and professionals so like healthcare professionals or um, um, police officers and whatnot and that is if if there is an even a victim associated with with the offense we're, and, I'm sorry
0: to interrupt but yeah. it's just we're so uneducated as a society on on the language right like when you hear victim I mean I'm ashamed to admit it but even I thought like NCR is, yeah, violent crime. So to know that it's 9% and that when like a story, like a news article comes out and so the victim, you're like, oh my gosh, someone was murdered or someone was abused or hurt, right? Like there was no associate in my mind till now that it's like a victim is also just, you know, you trespassed on my lawn and I charged mm-hmm. you. That, mm-hmm. that's, that's so interesting.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's the sensationalized cases that create this fear And what makes a case sensational is usually when it's typically when there's a stranger involved and when it's unpredictable, unprovoked violence, like Mm -hmm. that stuff happens so rarely. Um, And most often these serious offenses that do happen are people who did it knowingly. And that's another thing to remember, like the whole point of being found NCR is because of your mental illness, the whole definition is you did not understand what you were doing were wrong was wrong. You did not. Um, it's typically psychosis involved, come sometimes command hallucinations or uh, delusions. But um, that's the whole point. So we don't, you know, like, again, it's not their fault. It's uh, just like the cards they were dealt. And that's, that's even worse. And in that individuals who are, you know, Come into contact contact with the law and who have a mental illness, they have to deal with this double stigma, we call
1: mm-hmm.
2: it. So, you have the stigma of having a mental illness, and then you have the stigma of um, being involved in the criminal justice system, and they have to deal with both. And mm-hmm. the crappy thing is, they didn't ask for it, right? No one asked to have a mental illness, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: No one asked to be so sick that you, you know, you harm someone you love. And that's the sad thing. Like, a lot of individuals, um, once they become treated, and they get um, medication that's working, then they have to live with the regret and the guilt of hurting a family member, or or hurting a stranger, or hurting a professional, whoever, if they did hurt someone, they have to live with that. So it's, it's really, um, it, I'm something I'm really passionate about. And mm-hmm. when I give guest lectures and whatnot, I do try to dispel those myths. And it's just there's no research that shows that connection between mm-hmm. mental illness and 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 crime or violence unless there's all these other contributing factors and it's just the cases we see in the media are like 0.2 i'm making the stat up it's like 0.00 whatever percent of all the cases like if if it doesn't matter what offense you had, if you have an offense that a mental illness was involved in and you did not understand what you did was wrong, it doesn't matter if it was murder or if it was um, uttering threats or um, mischief, you Mm -hmm. can still be, be found NCR. And the sad thing is once you, you know, they, they are treated in secure hospitals, which can be um, less restrictive, than like a prison environment. But most individuals who are detained in a hospital or who are sort of found NCR, they're not given a sentence either. Mm-hmm. So they could be there indefinitely. Mm-hmm. So you could have a charge of mischief and you could be stuck in the hospital for the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you're not, um, if you're not rehabilitating well or if, you're, if you know, your mental illness is difficult to treat and you're still deemed a risk to the public, Um, so yeah there's like there's research that has shown that um, crime for crime individuals that enter the let's call it the forensic mental health system or if you found NCR and individuals who enter the prison system individuals who enter the prison system spend way less time detained than Mm -hmm. individuals who are found NCR on average so there is this like mentality of oh it's it's they're just taking the easy way out but it's the research shows that they're really, they're not taking the easy way out they uh In fact, it's, I can't imagine living with never knowing when you're going to get out. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that was going to be the next point I wanted to get on with NCR. I'm going back. I haven't taken a law class since grade 12. So 11 years ago, which is really scary to say. To, in order to commit a crime, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because uh, I'm going back with the terms, you need yep. uh, the actus reus, which is the action, and the mens rea, which is the knowing of which you are doing the act. So to be not criminally responsible, you're missing that. Did I, did I, did I get that? You one? did.
2: That was great. Yeah. You're missing mens rea. Exactly.
0: Um, so. And like you said, people have the association. That's the easy way out. If they commit mm-hmm. a crime and they, they want to claim, you know, and I don't even know if it's a proper legal term, but they like, again, media, movies, they say like that they plead not guilty for reason of insanity. Mm-hmm. Um, so how easy is it or how hard is it to get that diagnosis to not be responsible for the crime like is is it like i know you already said like if you are found it's not it's not going to be the easy way but to even Mm -hmm. get that diagnosis like what what do you have to like how do you prove that because i imagine that could be very sticky and and at times controversial especially with like something maybe i know you said violence low but like if there is like people wanting justice like it could be really hard right
2: yeah, sure. so the so, like the legal process essentially, it's very, very uncommon to, uh, I think I, I saw a stat uh, the other day. So only um, I'm pretty sure in Canada, only two out of a thousand cases are are people found NCR. Mm-hmm. And the process is um, yeah, and and actually not guilty but uh, or an insanity defense is actually, it's a stigmatizing word, but it's actually not super inaccurate because that's what we called it up until like 1992. It was Mm. not guilty by reason of insanity. And, uh, some, I think some places in the U S still use that term. So we changed it in 1992 to, um, not criminally responsible on account of mental disorder. Um, so yeah, that's where that, that's where that comes from. It used to be a legal term. So essentially when, what happens is when someone, um, uh, commits an offense, and they're either their crown, or their lawyer, or someone involved. And we, um, especially in bigger cities like in Ottawa, we have uh, the the there's psychiatrists that are involved in the mental health court process to give you know sort of expert opinion right at the at the beginning of the process mm-hmm. as well, and to help out. Um, so what happens basically is if someone is suspected to can usually tell their crime like typically uh the offenses are like there's some red flags right with the offenses like um uh it was odd odd to be doing that like r- you know um I've read different police reports like running th- running naked to through the street and stealing mm-hmm. a car is an odd thing to do like w- a lot of times and there's no really real motive that can be distinguished or Typically, if the police are interviewing the person and what they're saying, the reason for um, uh, uh, um, the alleged offense is that so and so was talking to them and telling them to do it, like there's different cues that it's like, okay, maybe there is a mental illness that was involved in this offense. There's lots of different cues we can look for, um, for that. And what happens then is the courts will mandate that someone gets a f- Typically 30-day minimums. Sometimes it can take 60 days, um, criminal responsibility assessment. Mm. Uh, so those are typically done uh, in a secure hospital, though they can be done on an outpatient basis if the person's deemed low enough risk. And then they'll just do intensive uh, psychiatrists will do like intensive interviews, and um, they'll have different social work assessments and risk assessments to try to determine. At the time of the crime, which is hard because we can't go back in time, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. At the time of the crime, was this person able to meet those requirements for mens rea? So um, psychiatrists are really well trained on people uh, on like malingering, which is like faking um that doesn't, I don't think that happens as often as people think. Yeah. It's that's what very I was going to ask to get away with that. Yeah. Like how
0: easy would it be to pull the old Edward Norton and fake it all out on everybody? Probably not easy at all.
2: No, I don't think so. And I also don't know if that would be the smartest option for a lot of people. Right. Cause right, like I said, yeah. like it, it, you don't get, you know, some people do who are really deemed low risk and have, um, Maybe nonviolent and like not as serious uh, charges, they might get um, sort of immediate release, but that's really uncommon. Like typically, you're under this—it's uh, um, called a review board that oversees your treatment and rehabilitation. So typically, like once you're once you're in, it's it it can take some time to sort of become free again. So it's really not the it's not the the easy way out, as I've been saying, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you no. Know, uh, psychiatrists are trained on malingering, and there's ways to, um, I'm not sure what they all are, but there's flags that they look for that's, you know, some sort of like textbook. Yeah, I was hearing voices, and they told me to do this, but they're also observing them for, uh, typically, these assessments are done in the hospitals. So they're also observing them for 30 to 60 days, right? So um, not always, but typically if you were that ill at the time of your crime, which would have been very recent, maybe in the past days or weeks, you're probably not completely better moving forward, right? Mm-hmm. So you'd have to keep, keep up that ruse for day in and day out. So, And a lot of the times the individuals have a, a record of um, uh, already being found, diagnosed with a serious mental illness in the past, mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them have, uh, uh, have already been seen at different hospitals in the civil psychiatric sort of, um, area in like the schizophrenia or, or uh, mood programs. Um, so it's, it's, I mean, it's not, it's not a perfect science, but they're pretty good at it. And then what happens is that psychiatrists will make their recommendation at the end of the assessment, and then there'll be the courts will make that final decision, um, I know in more high-profile cases, I think there's, I'm not sure what the impact of like public opinion are. I know that there are uh, infamous cases, like there was one with, um, I'm not sure if you heard of Matthew DeGroot. He was uh, in Cal, I think it was, he was in Calgary and he was a university student and he was, um, he had no criminal history or anything as far as I know. And he went out and he, murdered I think four uh, university students sort of like out of nowhere and the families were very 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 outspoken about um, they were they were not happy that he was found NCR but Mm -hmm. he like it's it's the law right like it's public opinion matters but it's it's, the law is a law if someone meets those criteria that's how it works right and they don't just release individuals willy nilly. It takes a long time. It takes a lot of rehab, and they're followed for a long period of time. Typically, even while they're into the community, they're still being monitored and followed.
0: Right. How do you de- <laughs> how do you determine risk? Um, I don't. I, and again, I don't know if that's outside of your expertise or if you even know. But that's something I'm curious about. How you might be able to determine or try to make a judgment on on someone's risk factor of either reoffending or becoming violent again um, what sorts of things might you look for questions you might ask things you're trying to determine in order to make an assessment like that
2: um, so <clears throat> there's a lot of like standardized and well val- validated risk assessment tools that are sort of like statistical they give us statistical um Um, likelihood of someone reoffending and being violent those are used those shouldn't be used um, (laughs) entirely those should be uh, typically the best approach to assessing risk in of in psychology and in forensic psychology particularly is a structure a structured professional judgment approach so that is taking like statistical risk factors but also taking sort of subjective risk risk into play too so like Research has shown that social support is very good at reducing someone's risk. What is this person's social support? So it's a whole bunch of different factors that you have to take Mm. into account. It is, it's funny you ask that because when someone is found NCR, for them to be um, free, let's use those words, it's called, they they get an absolute discharge. So an absolute discharge is... Basically, you've been found NCR, you have been deemed to be rehabilitated and no longer a significant risk to the public. So as soon as they are no longer deemed a significant risk to the public, they legally have to be uh, given an absolute discharge. And then when that happens, they're free to go. They can just like you and I, they're free to leave the the country, they're free to uh, do whatever they want. And what is a lot of people ask, you know, what is like, what is a significant risk? What deems significant? And there's actually mm. been like court cases to try to, uh, to try to like define significant. And like, there was a case, um, I forget which year within the past 10 or 15 years where basically they said significant can't be like a minor annoyance to the population it's got to be something more serious how you determine that it's it's a, it's a case-by-case basis you look at like i said all those risk factors that have been validated in in research to show us that yeah if someone has x y and z factors they're more likely to re-offend um, but that's still not perfect right it's not 100 percent accurate so Typically, so what happens with the NCR population is um, they're overseen by this review board and I haven't really um, uh, explained what that is, but they, a review board is made up of like mental health and legal professionals. So it's a rotating board of people. It's usually five people that include like a psychiatrist, a lawyer, um, a a judge, and then a lay person that has mental health uh, experience. And so these individuals literally... Uh, take turns being on this board and they will travel from hospital to hospital around Ontario and they will review a document about the last year of that individual who's found NCR, how they've been doing. And that document can be, you know, can be lengthy. And it has input from treatment teams, input from psychiatrists, anything um, bad that they did over the year, Mm. whether it's, um, um, maybe if they were aggressive or if they weren't participating in treatment, if they're breaking the rules, that's all recorded. If they're doing really well, that's all recorded. And then they, on a yearly basis, this review board, this panel of experts, they make a decision using the input from the psychiatrist and the treatment team and using the, um, the individual who's found NCR. They can ask too for what they want, but typically um, Typically, I don't think their voice is listened to as much as the the treatment teams and psychiatrists, but then they determine what that level of risk is and what their next year is going to look like. So people who are NCR, they have varying degrees of detainment and security requirements and privileges. So you can have someone who is literally... um, their disposition, it's almost like a probation order. But for um, the Ontario Review Board, um, what well, we call in Ontario, every province has their own, but it's basically like a legally binding document that says, x person must be detained at the Royal Mental Health Ottawa Mental Health Centre, they can go into community with staff, they cannot have weapons, they must give up urine samples as required by the treatment team. So it's like essentially instructions. And every year those, um, in an ideal world, those, uh, that disposition will become less and less restrictive. But sometimes if the individual had like not a great year, if they decompensated, that disposition becomes more restrictive. And it is ultimately that panel of individuals who decides when that person can A, start living in the community, or B um, become absolutely discharged. So they are the individuals that have to determine whether someone's a significant risk. And they use all sorts of um, information from the treatment teams from risk assessments that have been done from that person's history, So they have that whole person's history. Um, and if that person had one offense, and they're remorseful, remorseful for that offense, and they've been great in the hospital, and they haven't done anything wrong, like, typically that's a great sign and you know though it's a case by case basis but mm-hmm. these experts also review hundreds of these a year and they become it's always perfect sometimes an individual is given more freedoms and they you know do something wrong and they have to be brought back into the hospital but humans are you can't 100% predict what a human's going to do right so i would just say it's a gradual process and Uh, very, very, very rarely is someone given an absolute discharge right from hospital. They're typically transitioned in the community and then they're monitored in the community Mm. until they get there. And it's, it's like a test, right? Like you are in the community, you have some of these freedoms and you're still, you know, take your meds and you're still not acting aggressively or being violent. Okay. Maybe we can work our way to an absolute discharge. They use all the evidence like that.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, is there like a a certain age that you have to be to meet that criteria? Like, do you have to be an adult, eighteen years old, or like do people in the juvenile system also would fall possibly fall under, you know, an NCR diagnosis? Like, can kids also go through this type of stuff?
2: I don't think so. I've never. I've only ever studied adults, and you have to be an adult you have to be an adult, I don't know if there's something similar for, like, children, I want to say no, because I've never heard of it. and I've been studying this for mm-hmm. eight years. But yeah, no. all the individuals that I've ever come across or that are in the hospital are adults. And, you know, a big part of that too, is like the onset, the onset of serious mental illness, right? Um, typically, for um, males, it is sort of late teens, early 20s um so that's a big factor as well uh just like to have an, a mental illness onset that's so serious that you are uh com- you know uh, committing crimes where you don't understand what's going on mm-hmm. I just think prevalence right, right. like I, I, don't, I don't even know if there would be enough people <clears throat> to sort of address that in in children because so I just think that ha- happens more often when they are meeting the adult criteria but no I I don't as far as i know no there's nothing like that for uh for children i think if it's a great question though because like if a youth were to come into contact with the law and have um a serious mental illness they would probably um like we like the 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 royal does have a youth unit mm-hmm. that um and i know there there is also um there are is there are forensic sort of like um court reports and stuff that are done on youth Um, but that would just be um, that wouldn't be in the NCR um, sort of realm that would be just sort of other involvement law involvement with mental illness
0: right yeah I mean that's and that's just again the movies making me ask that question because you think like again you go to the slash films or whatever that a kid uh, is a child is displaying like psychopathic tendencies and hurting animals or beginning to become more violent. And then they end up in the the psych ward at a, at a hospital. Yeah. So I'm like, that's why I was kind of like, I mean, that probably does not even, I mean, I don't know, but probably doesn't happen very often if at all.
2: Yeah. Well, and then that's another thing like psychopathy or a personality disorder itself is not enough to be found, not criminally responsible. Right.
1: Mm. Like,
2: those individuals, if that's their only um, issue, they still have the mental capacity to understand what they were doing is right or wrong. Mm -hmm. So that's the big thing with um, uh, and and the laws did change in the early 1990s to sort of um, address that because I do think there were individuals who were, were were using the defense who didn't have uh, a serious mental illness. They had a serious personality disorder, but today that would not be enough to meet that criteria. Though mm. so, there are some people that do have, let's say, um, schizophrenia, and also have a personality disorder. That happens a lot. A lot of individuals do have a co-occurring personality disorder, but it personality disorder is not enough to to make you sort of let you meet that definition. Right. Um, yeah, that's yeah. it's well, that's an old that's a sort of a separate um feel. Yeah, a lot of people with psychopathy and stuff, they end up in the traditional criminal justice system.
0: Right. Yeah, it's just one of those things. And I originally I was going to ask the same question about like sex crimes or anything too, right? Especially or like addiction, not to equate the two, but just sort of this idea that you might not know what you're doing because you're addicted or whatever, but I mean, after you kind of answered how difficult it is to maybe be diagnosed as not criminally responsible, like you pretty much answered the question where it's like, it'd be extremely difficult to prove.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a big issue because be like mental illness and substance use are unfortunately like very often they are co-occurring and it is hard. um, And I've, I've, I've spoken to psychiatrists about this and it's really hard to tease apart especially when you're looking backwards at someone's crime, we weren't there,
1: right?
2: Right? It's hard to know if they were using substances and if they have a serious mental illness, what was the causal cause? Right. Yeah. What was a sort of contributing factor, I should say. And they have to do their best to look at that person's history. Have they ha- had other incidents maybe where they weren't using substances, but they were also experiencing these symptoms. So it's really... Um, like I, I give props to psychiatrists that have to do these assessments, but they're very good at them. Um, but it is a, it is a, um, it is an issue. Cause like I said earlier, that's where there is no causal link between mental illness and violence, but when you have a co-occurring substance use disorder or um, substance use issues, that's when that risk becomes elevated. So um, yeah, a lot of the individuals who are um, uh, found not criminally responsible, they, they do have substance use issues that are treated at the same time as their mental illness. Um, And yeah, they just, they, a lot of times, unfortunately, they go hand in hand. Right. And a lot of times their histories are very, they're tainted with, like I said, abuse and trauma and um, they were just not dealt a great hand for the most part.
0: So. Mm -hmm. You, you didn't come on necessarily to talk about you, but I'm, I'm going to ask the question. Um, so answer it however you feel comfortable answering, mm-hmm. but I'm always curious as a mental health advocate and sharing so many stories of, of people's, you know, illness or journeys on, and that, do, how does this job, you know, affect you affect your peers and colleagues? Like, is it a difficult job to try to separate for your, from, you know, your own kind of like personal things going on in your life because you're, you know, you might start to really care about the outcomes or you might read mm-hmm. something. I know you said violent crimes aren't huge, but you might read someone's backstory and be like, Oh my God, that's like, is there a lot that you, you deal with and you take on uh, personally in terms of mental health and, and, and stuff? Or is it easy to kind of separate the two?
2: Uh, for me personally, I would say I'm pretty good at separating the two. I think that um, I have no doubts that it would, uh, you know, with colleagues and stuff, I'm sure it impacts people more, depends on their own disposition. I would say that I'm in a unique role where I'm not treating these individuals. Mm. I'm not, um, I'm not there working with them, treating them day to day to day, seeing, um, you know, things that happen on the unit. I'm sort of like uh, removed. And I do, Do a lot of research with the patients themselves, Um, working on multiple studies right now where I'm in on the units talking with them interviewing, but then I'm gone. Mm -hmm. So luckily, I'm not exposed to and you know, if if the units not doing well that day, if things are volatile, for whatever reason, researchers don't go on because you know, Mm -hmm. researcher, you know, research is vital and important, but it comes second to clinical care and rehabilitation um, at, at that acute moment. So Luckily, I'm sort of removed from the day to day stuff. Um, In terms of Yeah, I've read some some files that are very, uh, like horrible to read. I'm lucky I don't like we've had volunteers come help um, do some research that have had to sort of just after a couple days be like, I can't do this. It affects me too much. And um, I'm lucky I had like, I had a great upbringing. I don't, you know, I don't have like a history of trauma or anything. So I don't have triggering moments that maybe some mm, other people would have. Mm. Um, another thing I'll say is, you know, some people ask and it's not really what you ask, but it's related is some people will say, you know, how do you sit in the same room as someone who's murdered mm. someone? Like how, how do you s- smile at them? How do you be nice to them? And I think that um, first of all, like that it's, it's easy. To, to, to have a quick answer. And I think I haven't worked with the general uh, incarcerated population very much at all. But I think what makes it easier with this population is, I, I know that despite what this person did, again, this is not their fault. That's the whole reason why they're here. Mm. And it's like, I have some of the kindest, um, most wonderful people I have interacted with were patients that, um, you know, murdered someone in their past and it, they're, they're rehabilitated, they're, um, they've, they've had that medication and therapy and it doesn't necessarily define them as a person. And it's, um, it's very easy to have personally to have empathy for, um, this population and I don't really think about what they've done when I'm interacting with them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sad, you know, a lot of them, not, not a lot, but like a lot of them don't have like great support networks or, uh, sometimes their families disown them. So it's like, to me, I, I find it easy to show them kindness and compassion. Um, cause I know that, a lot of the times in the hospital, they're definitely treated well, but like a lot of times in, in the community, you know, if someone finds out who you are, what you've done, you might not get a job, you might not get an apartment. And I just, you know, I always say this sort of cliche thing, like you don't punish someone for having cancer, right? Like, oh my God, you had cancer. oh, we can't hire you. Like I don't want you living in this apartment, but people with mental illness, that's what they go through every day. You know, like, There's been occasions where someone has offended been found NCR, their story was publicized, they're Mm -hmm. doing great. Mm -hmm. They've never hurt another fly. they're, 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 um, on medication and then they go to get a job and someone Googles them and they, or they join a club and they're doing really well. And it's like, it's really sad because those are the things that like solid employment, good family support, good social support joining clubs and stuff, that's actually going to heal these individuals more. But they can't contribute to those things or engage in those things if the community doesn't sort of allow them to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there mm-hmm. was we've had incidents where um, uh, we had an, a, a patient who was involved in club and it was so fulfilling and it was great. Someone found out who they were and banned them from the club. And it was like the the happiest part of that person's week. And yeah, so it's for me, it's um, I don't I don't definitely don't take it home. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not a cold person. I read some of these files and I do have empathy for people who are victims. And um, they're not all the good things they do. Or Sorry, all the things they do are not good. Right. But it's um, I understand, like, I couldn't fathom having going through what some of these people go through Mm -hmm. and living with essentially an incurable mental illness, like a serious Mm and incurable mental illness. I just couldn't fathom living with that. And so any, any time I can show them, treat them like a human or show them empathy is like really rewarding for me too. And like, that makes a good researcher as well. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, and if you're just totally rude and cruel, you might not get what you need as for one thing, yeah. But what strikes me about you is, you know, I could, I can almost feel the empathy <laughs> from you through this screen in this conversation. Like, you know, I'm being filled up with kind of like energy and feelings. And I just, I, it comes across from you so deeply and genuinely. Um, yeah. And that's so fascinating that you talking to these people who, who have been subject to you know, these awful things that may have happened in their life, whatever they may be has made you grow into this just this force of of empathy and and really just just this energy about you so I just I just find that really interesting and wanted to note that um I have like kind of two questions and I don't know if I missed anything so we'll get there too but is mental illness the only criteria to have someone be found not criminally responsible like is that the only kind of thing people are looking for? Are there other factors that may lead to that that kind of diagnosis.
2: Um, yeah, Not I diagnosis, know, but uh, designation. De- yeah, sure, sorry. yeah, yeah. No, that's okay. Um, so, yeah, essentially, legally, um, the first part of the legal requirement is you have to have a mental disorder. Um, so, you know, once that's diagnosed then you go on to um finding if they were able to understand the nature of the sto- their um their acts so, so and sorry. like that's the yep. Yeah.
0: if someone was like blackout drunk like that wouldn't count even though they might not know or be cognitive of what they did
2: that's a really fascinating question because that's um i think the supreme court of canada is looking at that right now so that oh. is called that is called automatism so automatism is essentially when um there's something out of your control that um causes you to do something uh, to offend. So that could be um sleepwalking. Uh that's actually been found to um been found to a feeling a, a finding of a autom- automatism. So it's a very um it's not used very often, though it dis, does sort of uh, fit into this conversation. So like the legal definition of automatism is unconscious involuntary behavior such that the person committing the act was not aware of what they were doing. So in again, they, they need to change these words, but insane automatism leads to the NCR diagnosis. Non-insane automatism is something usually that's an external factor so insane automatism is the internal factor of the mental illness we know where that goes ncr we just talked about that non-insane automatism is an external factor like i said sleepwalking though i guess that's sort of internal but you know you get what i mean sleepwalking if someone um makes you intoxicated and it wasn't your fault so if someone drugs you and you mm-hmm. commit an act so what happens with automatic um non-insane insane automatism is you're actually found not guilty and you're sort of you're acquitted and you move on. Okay. Recently, so voluntary intoxication. So I get really, really, really drunk and I hurt someone. That was always found to be not a criteria because I'm sure you can understand how problematic that would be.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um just in the last couple of years, a couple of cases uh, actually challenged that law. And now it's going through the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is uh, assessing whether voluntary intoxication can be used as an automatism defense. Mm. And I'm really curious on where that's going to go because that, you know, I'm sure there's going to be nuances with that law. But on the surface, that's basically saying you voluntarily use drugs or alcohol and if you hurt someone or if you offend you can be acquitted of the crime and that is like super problematic and that opens up a whole whole bunch of doors and there was a case um, last summer I think I'm not sure if you heard about this case but it was an individual in I think Calgary um and uh he uh used mushrooms And he was a great student, no criminal history, no mental illness. He used mushrooms and he started like running down the street naked. He broke into a professor's, um, I don't even think he knew it was her house, just happened to be a professor at his school and assaulted her. And he was actually found not guilty um, because they were able to prove that, you know, it, it wasn't like him and all this. And that really... That opened up a can of worms because that sets precedent in in law, right? So, it has been tried um, more and more in the last few years. Um, there has been a, sex- a couple sexual assault cases where the individual was um, like blackout drunk, or um, there's one case I think the individual roofied themselves. I'm not sure why they would do that, um, and mm. and he assaulted someone, and they tried to use that in the court. So. It's, it's being tested more and more currently as it stands, the answer is no voluntary intoxication cannot be used for the automatism defense. But like I said, stay tuned. Cause I think it's being challenged right now, legally. Um, wow.
0: That's uh, one of those, right? um, those legal questions that I don't envy people having to answer. Cause there's kind of like, on the one hand you're right. Like that opens a whole can of worms. I don't think we want to open but at the other end, it kind of, you know, stigmatizes drug users and, and people with addiction issue. I mean, those are just one of those no easy answers. And it's like, oh, gosh, exactly. I kinda, that's where I'm glad I work in radio and I'm not in charge of those things. Um, my, my last kind of question, is there a country who's really good at this? Um, and is there a country really bad? So I'll go off my general knowledge of not very little, but what the media seems to tell me is like America be, would be really, really bad at this type of rehabilitation, um, and and mental illness, you know, rehabilitation. And then I, I remember, I can't remember where I watched the, if it was a documentary or what it, what it was, but the system in Finland, where they don't even go to jail, they live in like kind of group homes, that's minimally secured. Um, They seem to be doing really well at it. And then so is there someone who has a really good handle on this system with the not like with with what you do Mm -hmm. and rehabilitation, someone who's not very good at it? And where does Canada kind of fall in it?
2: Yeah, so that's a great question. It's hard to answer because even within countries themselves, the laws are different. So right. there is, and I was actually just reading a paper on this the other day, the forensic mental health system is so nuanced across the world and then within countries. So even within Canada, we have a review board um, across every different province. Though so our laws are federal. Um, we have found differences in how provinces sort of operate and how long people spend in the system and whatnot. In the US, that's even more the case. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think it's mostly a state by state basis. And I know there's some states that are um, maybe more in line with with Canada's approach. And I know there's some, uh, there's a couple, I think that recently, um, don't quote me on this, but I was reading the last several years, they almost abolished that approach that you can't really Um, use the end and they don't call it NCR, um, depends on the state, but you couldn't really even use that defense there. And they really, um, there's not a lot of options for that sort of approach. So I know there's it's like a state by state basis. Um, Rehabilitation, the the mental illness in, in the prison system is like a huge issue, depending on the study it's like upwards of like 80% in some cases that's not serious mental illness. That would just, uh, that would incorporate all mental illness. But um, in terms of like the best and worst, I take your word for it on the Finland thing. (laughs) I know there are some European countries and that's something that, um, that I want to learn more about as I go on to like postdoc or, or my future career is, to understand the different countries, countries and the different nuances and their approaches. I know Canada is um, decent and it's definitely up there and one of the better approaches for rehabilitation and um, in terms of, yeah, I know I'm going to, have to look into the Finland thing because that sounds, um, that sounds very interesting. I, I will say, though, like um, detaining individuals who are found NCR is not always a, not necessarily a bad thing, right? they're if they're detained in a secure hospital it's because they need to be mm-hmm. it's because they've been found um to be a risk to society and that's we have to balance the needs of the person and the society so I wouldn't say that having friends at hospitals is a bad thing I think it's a great thing um for the people who need it I think maybe um there could be more of a movement to living in the community and stuff and uh we're all doing our best but um there's definitely a need for them, so I'm not um, I'm not sure if other countries don't even have hospitals. I imagine that they have them in some capacity, but yeah, that's I, I don't really have. Um, I could say that I know Canada is is decent with rehabilitation. That's sort of our approach, even in the in the prison system. Uh, it's it's the idea is not to be punitive; it's to be sort of rehabilitative. Um, but yeah, in terms of like the country that's doing the best and the worst. Um, I know there's countries that don't really have laws around people with mental illness and commit crimes. I think that I couldn't uh, list the countries off the top of my head, but I know like, that's not good. Right. Cause mm-hmm. they just end up in the prison system. But um, yeah, no, that's something I want to look into more and learn about more, but I don't really have like, a cut and dry answer for mm-hmm. you. It's a great question though.
0: I also <laughs> lied. I have more questions.
2: Yeah, that's <laughs> They just that's came great. up
0: because um, one of them, and I think this is more of a myth that you could be, diagnosed not criminally responsible for reasons that you have a mental, like being falsely put in this situation right that like you feel you are completely lucid insane and have no mental illness and somehow you are found this way and you get locked up in like a psychiatric hospital I can't imagine that actually really happens with all the kind of like the monitoring but I, I'm pretty sure that's like a movie and I just want to make sure that like I touch on that and just dis- display yeah like, put that myth away <laughs>
2: Oh, yeah, I I, I couldn't imagine a situation where that happens. It's not like the decisions made in a day, right? Uh, Like I said, like these assessments take 30 days minimum, up to 60 days. And I I know there's some individuals who think they don't have a a mental illness, right? That's like a lot of um, that's a common thing with people with psychosis is if they're hearing voices or if they're having delusions and stuff like that's the whole that de- that's the whole definition of those is that th- that person believes it's real um yeah. if they knew it wasn't real then that would be there the issue wouldn't be there so um no I would say that the absolutely that wouldn't happen by accident and if someone were saying like I'm not ill and, like I've seen that all the time and that's an issue because some individuals really believe they don't have a mental illness and they really do believe they um, are the next coming of this, you know, religious figure. And then they, they don't want that to go away and meds make that go away. So they stop taking their meds. So that can happen, but no, that with all the mod- you know, if anything, I would say the opposite would occur. If someone were to slip through the cracks is that maybe someone should have been found NCR and wasn't right rather than the other way around. But again, like these assessments are, are very intensive. Um, they take a long time, a lot of resources
0: and yeah. yeah. All right. So don't worry people, it won't happen. Even yeah. if you see it in the movies.
1: Um, <laughs> That's right.
0: and the last thing there is you, you mentioned you were kind of doing some studies right now. Um, are you able to share just maybe one or two of the things that you're really looking into right now and studying?
2: For sure. Yeah. So, um, I'm doing for my PhD dissertation, I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at a uh, course of bullying among uh, uh, inpatients on these units. So that's like um, I've defined that as when like inpatients put pressure on other inpatients to do things they don't want to do um,
1: mm.
2: can be something like run an errand for them or um, uh, you know, give them their medication. So like uh We know this happens like in the prison system, but we haven't really assessed whether it happens in uh, the forensic inpatient uh, units. I've seen this sort of thing happen, so I know it does happen. Um, Just trying to understand who is engaging this behavior, um, what makes someone more vulnerable to the behavior, because you have people living in these units who are quite high functioning, who might have like some antisocial tendencies, and then you have individuals who are also very vulnerable um, uh, maybe have a chronic, um, symptoms that are, are really affecting their ability to sort of day-to-day, uh, interact day-to-day. So yeah, I'm just looking at that and hopefully assessing whether, how big of an issue it is and how, um, what kind of individuals are sort of like engaging in it and vulnerable to it. Also doing research on, um, risk of, um, escaping from, um, inpatient facilities. It's very rare. Um, but we're trying to come up with a risk assessment to determine um, what's the risk of sort of leaving unauthorized. So um, uh, it's called elopement, which people are like, <laughs> elopement, like they run off and get married. No, well, they, yeah. they Elopement from a hospital is essentially leaving without authorization. I'm also doing research on the um, individuals that come into the hospital from our mental health court here in um, Ottawa and sort of what they look like and what their trajectory is. And uh, uh, yeah, so that's just some of the things I'm working on. I have my hand in a few different pots, but a lot of the research comes back to that forensic population, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's sort of downstream or upstream, but um, that's uh, the sample I, I study the most. So
0: This has been one of those conversations why exactly why I started this podcast, because it was so damn interesting. I learned so, so much of this thing that we think we know that we really don't know unless you're involved in it. Mm -hmm. So, like, amazing. Thank you so much uh, for sharing your expertise and time. Did I miss anything? Like, is there something that I may not have asked or you didn't get a chance to talk about that people really should know? whether it's about the research or something you just want to reinforce?
2: Uh, yeah, no, I think you we touched on a lot and I, I, I'm happy that you enjoyed the topic and I love talking about it. Obviously, if I'm studying it every day, I, I have <laughs> to enjoy it. But like my take home message is always like after the end of a conversation with someone or the end of like teaching. Uh, like I said, I, I give guest lectures and stuff is like, um, just like the stigma is huge. And I have, um, I hope that like a lot of my research in the future will address that. And it's basically comes down to education Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and, um, and and even just throwing stats at people sort of like, make them, make them sort of like shocked, like the,
0: that 9%, like where you said, I'm like, wow, I've never, exactly.
2: and it's just like that one stat can change your whole view on things, yep. right? And like, even after individuals are released from the hospital, um, in, when NCR individuals are released from the hospital, research has shown that over the next three years, only 17% of them will reoffend, And only 0.6% of those offenses are serious and violent. And the, criminal, the traditional criminal justice system, so individuals that come from The correction facilities, 34% of those individuals reoffend. And like this, like, I get it and it's the media and and it's, it's, it's whatever, but like, I don't like, we don't need to be scared of, of individuals with mental illness. Like, look at the people who are making these decisions with a sound mind, you know, Um, which is not always the case, but it's, it's, uh, there's no sort of research basis behind it and it does happen but it happens so rarely and just sort of educate yourself would be um there's really there's like a lot of great resources online if you type in like ncr myths there are tons of uh articles that sort of dispel these myths that i talked about and um uh yeah just give you know give them give them a chance and there's i'll i'll say there was two um, fantastic documentaries, I'm not sure if you've seen them, filmed at the Brockville Mental Health Center. Um, so again, that's mm-hmm. the campus of the Royal. And one's called they're both available online for free. One's called out of sight out of mind. And the other one's called not criminally responsible. And they basically follow the life of different individuals who are in the hospital and being discharged and sort of put some faces to um, some people that maybe deserve some empathy and um, maybe give people a better take. So I, I always tell my friends and family to watch those. And they're like, what do you do? And I'm like, these are the people that I study. And this is what the hospital looks like. And, and these are, um, you know, not, you shouldn't be scared of not everyone's scary. So those are mm-hmm. two documentaries that people could watch for free online if they wanted more insight and information.
0: If I'm not mistaken, I feel like not currently responsible on Amazon prime or I've just, or maybe Netflix. I've, I'm almost positive. I've seen it somewhere there. I Um, think
2: they're both on, they might be both on Amazon prime,
0: All right. but I don't
2: like, don't quote me on that because they come and go, but I know that last time I checked, they were both online for free. Like you can stream them for free.
0: Um, yeah. I'm not sure if you're active publishing on on a website or, or Twitter with this information or you Instagram a lot but this is your chance to plug whatever you want to plug whether whether it's personal stuff or other things um, but please where can people find you if they need to
2: yeah so I'm I'm on Twitter um, gosh I have to look at my Twitter handle um, I, <laughs> my Twitter is more like a like would be like more of a networking academic um Twitter, oh, uh, so it's it's just my name, so it's at Healy Lindsay. Um, so yeah, everything I do have on there are, is in my field, um, it's usually mental health related, forensic related. I have to admit, I'm not a huge tweeter. Um, I uh, would like to be more involved, but I do retweet different things and I follow a lot of great researchers in the area and um, if anything new and interesting comes out in terms of research or, um, for example, with that, you know, that upcoming, uh, mm. Supreme court decision, like I would like definitely, um, be engaged being, I would be engaged with those sort of things online, but yeah, no, um, yeah, that's that I, I, once I graduate and, you know, I'm so busy with school and everything too, it's hard to keep up with the social media, but yeah, I hope that, uh, someday, um, I can be more involved with that too, but yeah, I'm on there a little bit.
0: Yeah, no, I. I I mean I didn't take ever try to get my PhD but I could only imagine um, but I would love and I when I speak to other you know researchers and everything like finding ways that we have this science accessible uh, especially for mental illness uh, whether yeah. it's social media podcasts YouTube channels TikToks I just think it's so important and so beneficial so we're getting our information from people like you who know. And not, you know, people who like have a crime podcast or or the media, you know what I mean? Like, uh, because you can just tell just through this conversation how stigmatizing it can be. So Lindsay, thank you. Thank you so much. This was amazing. And I really, really, really appreciate it.
2: Thank you. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate you letting me get my voice out there.
1: take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit